When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Well, happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension, Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash tips. lots of snark. Uh, what else in the 21st century do we have in the way of digital gardening? We have... Uh, of course, YouTube, Instagram, Pinterest, TikTok. Fred, why are you on TikTok? Don't ask. Uh, and, of course, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, where there is always a garden dialogue going on. We answer garden questions on this program. Got a question? Give us a call. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. You can send it via email, too, to fred at farmerfred.com. Cameron running the board today. We'll have a garden grappler a little bit later on as well, give some stuff away. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the Harvest Festival that's coming up at Cal Expo. We're going to talk about poinsettias too, and bats, and microgreens. All that on today's program. And the weather. This is unusual November weather. By now, we've usually had some rain. There is zero rain for Sacramento so far this year. And for much of northern and central California, for that matter, zero. When normally this time of year, we should have about, oh, I think it's about uh, 2.1 inches of rain. But no, not yet. So things are a bit dry. Things are really dry in some areas. And um, no rain in the forecast. I checked the AccuWeather forecast looking for rain. And generally when I'm looking at a long-range forecast, when I see one day of rain surrounded by days of sunshine, I don't believe it. It's those days of rain that very seldom actually show up. It's when you see rain after rain after rain two or three days in a row, then you can kind of logically expect it'll rain. The first place I see that for Sacramento, according to the AccuWeather forecast, is the last week of December. Woof. So your plants still need water, just not as much as uh, or not as often as you were doing three or four months ago because the soil temperature is lower, about 56 degrees or so, and the evapotranspiration rate is a fraction, a half inch per week, where in the summertime it's like two inches. So you don't need to water as often, once a week, maybe even once every other week. It depends on how well your soil drains. So let's get into the details of uh, the forecast for the week for our area. This is really nice. If you ride a bike, this is just gorgeous weather. There's been very little wind. You're not inhaling any smoke right now. And the temperatures are in the 70s. 75, the expected high today. 46 for the low. 77 on Monday. And then the temperatures drop a bit down into the mid-60s. Overnight lows dropping into the mid-40s to the low 40s, which may mean... By next week sometime, there might be a chance of frost in the area. It's not unusual for the Sacramento area to get a shot of temperatures uh, hovering around 32 degrees. Uh, 
that might pose a minor threat to your citrus and your succulents and any other tender plants that you may have. It's always a good idea, if they're in containers, to move them this time of year to the west side or the south side of the house where they can get some reflected heat off a wall and put them on concrete, too, if if that's possible. So uh, go for it and uh, get the frost cloths ready. If you use lights, uh, either incandescent lights or the old-style big Christmas lights, get those. It's not that it's going to happen this week, but just have them ready. Know where they are. So when you hear a forecast of temperatures getting down to near freezing, you can go swing into action. Now, the good news is that most of the uh, fruit that you have is fairly hardy down to maybe 28 or 30 degrees. It depends on the variety. Bears, limes are fairly tender. Even Meyer lemons can be somewhat susceptible when temperatures get around 30, but we don't see that in the forecast. And again, at this point, all we're thinking about is protecting the fruit. You start worrying about protecting the health of the tree when temperatures get down into the mid to low 20s. And I don't see that in the forecast. If you want to believe the AccuWeather forecast for the month of December, uh, they're saying overnight lows in the mid-30s. But then that's way off. And they're only one notch above astrologers when it comes to uh, gleaning the truth on these matters. They're just guessing. Well, I mean, it's an educated guess. But still, they're just guessing. All right. Wow, people with questions. We can we can pretend to answer questions. We do that here on this program. Let's go to the phones right now. Dante in Stockton, how are you? Real good. How are you? Uh, thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Sure. I, I have a question regarding verticillium wilt on a Japanese maple. Okay. Uh, it was in a container for years, and I put it in the ground, and uh, last year it was about one-third of it wilted. And then this year it's about the same. And I wanted to pull it out and plant a uh, elix uh, berry there. Will the wilt transfer onto the new plant or not? It depends on what plant you want to put in. There is a good website that discusses verticillium wilt and the plants that you can uh, put in areas that have vert. Because verticillium wilt lives in the soil. And it could very easily be passed on to other trees of the same genus and species. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally speaking, if you want to plant another maple, that's not a a good idea. Are you sure it's verticillium wilt? Did you do the uh, scratch test on it? Yeah. Okay. And so when you scratch back the bark on a branch that was was sort of, it was, was it black streaks? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe it was, it's been some time. Okay, well, yeah, we'll do it again. This black. time, this time, do it on a branch that is sort of half dead, but that still, has ha- that has some life to it. And when you scrape back the bark, you're going to see streaking. It's usually brown or black streaks. And if that's the case, that's probably uh, uh, verticillium wilt. And uh, peeling back the bark on newly infected branches uh, will show those dark stains better than if you went after older wood. But, uh Verticillium wilt uh, is common in, as you mentioned, maples, but also ash trees, camphor trees, Chinese pistache, even some uh, perennials like fuchsias or veronica, also known as hebe. But yes, maple trees, olive trees, uh, pepper trees, and uh, and even roses. And uh, oh, really? Yeah. It, so it, it can spread. Proper well, how irrig- do you get rid of it? I, I, I was told if you put black plastic uh, all the way out 
from the uh, base of the tree out to the tree drip line and leave it, uh, it'll heat up the soil and kill that. Is that true? In Stockton, you want to go with clear plastic. The only place where black plastic works is in the Bay Area because they don't get enough heat uh, to make it work. The idea of using clear plastic is to heat the soil up to 140 degrees, and that will usually control the vert verticillium will to a depth of maybe 10 or 12 inches or so and you want to put that clear plastic down though in the summertime when you have the best chances of uh, doing it so june july august leaving the clear plastic down and and well sealed on the edges too not to let any air in and i'll I'll take you step by step through it Uh, basically clear off any sort of uh, plants weeds or whatever around the tree and Mm -hmm. water it thoroughly water it deeply and then put the okay. cl- then put the clear plastic down, being sure to anchor all the edges. Leave it on for six weeks. If it develops, How about ta- putting rocks on top. You could do it around the edges if you wanted yeah. to, but you don't want air sneaking in. It does get windy in Stockton, okay. so you don't want air right. sneaking in underneath well, this it. This is in a protected area surrounded by fence. Okay, that's good. There's no wind. All right, but that would be the trick, and leaving that on for four to six weeks uh, in the summertime can help mitigate the problem. But, now, what did you want to replace it with again? Uh, it's a, um, uh, like, it's not Elix cornuta. It's a Elix spe- subspecies I just bought yesterday. It makes the red berries. I was going to put it in for the birds. Okay, yeah, holly is what we're talking about here. Yeah, holly. And, exactly. and, and holly is resistant to verticillium wilt. So oh, y- cool. you could possibly get away with just taking out the maple tree, putting in the holly, and not have a problem. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about doing, yeah. Okay. But I didn't know if the disease would transfer into onto the uh, the berry. It, no, it won't transfer to that plant, but you could uh, mistakenly carry some contaminated soil from that area to another part of your garden or yard with mm-hmm. dirt on a shovel. So just be sure to clean off all your tools when you're done working in the area so you don't accidentally transfer okay. some of the soil uh, to other parts of the garden. But, yeah, uh, with holly, you could probably get away with planting it in that area, and it would thrive. Good. All right, that's what I'm going to do. All right, Dante, thanks for calling. Appreciate thanks. it. Appreciate it, yeah. All right, yeah. That's a, it's a, Vert is a serious problem. Verticillium wilt and... As Dante noted, it starts off with sort of dying on one side of the tree first. And, you know, you might look at it and go, oh, I better do something about that. And you put it in the back of your mind, and the next thing you know, you go out in the yard and the whole tree's dead. Again, good information online about verticillium wilt at uh, the University of California, uh, UCANR. If you do an Internet search for uh, UCANR and verticillium wilt, You can get good information there about controlling it. We'll take a break. When we come back, growing microgreens indoors. Coming up as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. 
Have you tried microgreens yet? It's some of the healthiest food you can eat, and basically it's just baby vegetables that you can grow on your kitchen counter as long as there's some bright light around. We're talking with Gail Potthauer, Sacramento County Master Gardener out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. And microgreens are exactly what that description is, isn't it? These are just small germinated vegetables and herbs. Exactly. As long as the vegetable or herb or even flowers are edible to begin with, you can grow any any cool season crop, any herb that's edible. Uh, nasturtiums as an edible flower could be grown. And it takes... 10 days, two weeks, depending on the variety you're growing, to go from seed to your first harvest. And you grow them in a potting soil or a seedless uh, mix. That's how they're differentiated between sprouts, because sprouts are grown in water. These are grown in some sort of a soil. So you can use that soilless seed starting mix in maybe a pre-purchased container that has uh, several little containers that you could start the seeds in or but you have a unique way of doing it i save all my deli containers from from the deli in the grocery store something a salad bar came in or whatever and i just am sure that there's drainage holes in the bottom if they're not already there i punch them in with an ice pick and then i can use the cover that goes on that deli container to cover the seeds initially and then i use it as a saucer after that but i'm sort of cheap and lazy and i don't like to um throw anything away so I reuse them. Be sure that they're scrupulously clean so I always wash them in soap and water and even a little bit of bleach if I've used them um, before with soil and they work fine. And the, the purpose of those drain holes, drainage is very important when you're starting the seeds. Absolutely and what I found with microgreens is I um, start them in a moistened soilless mix, plant the seeds, you don't have to plant them deeply, some I just sprinkle on top and kind of push them in and I use bottom heat just because I have it around. And I had arugula that came up in one day and mustard came up in two days. My beets came up in two days. Was, and then once they have grown a little bit, maybe a quarter of inch or so, then I no longer water from above because they're so fragile it tends to smash them down. So I bought uh, water from the bottom. I'll put them in a little tub of water and let it soak up through the soil. So How long will you keep them in that little pot of water? Um, just until they're saturated, maybe half an hour or so. Then take them out and let them drain. Mm -hmm. And then put them back uh, under the lights or in a window, wherever you have them. Because they grow so quickly, they don't really need a lot of light. Um, if you're growing out a tomato transplant, you need to have good light for them for uh, several weeks. But microgreens grow so quickly, they don't need to be under lights a long time. Now, we should point out tomatoes are not part of the microgreen list. No, because while the tomato fruit is edible, the um, plants are toxic. And so just be sure that whatever vegetable or herb or flower you're planting is edible. And we should point out, too, that when you said you apply bottom heat, that doesn't mean you're sitting on the plants. That means that you've purchased, what, a propagation mat. Right. I do have a propagation mat. Or you could put them um, in a warm spot on top of your refrigerator or wherever. Cool season crops like arugula and mustard and beets that I have growing right now don't really need the bottom heat. I do it just to get them off to a quick start. And we should also point out is you don't have to cook these, you eat them raw. Right, you do eat them raw. They're so fragile, If you'd sprinkle them on a dish when it's done, or I put them in salads, use them in place of lettuce on a sandwich or something like that. 
I don't like some of the uh, cool season crops, mustards and arugulas. I don't care for that, but I like them as microgreens because you get just a little bit of, you don't get a whole mouthful of arugula. Now, what I found amazing in your research, you found that the cotyledons serve well as microgreens. The cotyledons are the initial leaves that come out on any right. seedling, and then it starts forming new leaves. And you are basically advising people that when you harvest the microgreens, it could be at the cotyledon stage or at the first leaf stage. Correct. The uh, microgreens are eaten when they're very young. You don't need them to get much taller than the first um, true leaf because in some varieties, depending on the vegetable, can start to get a little woody or a little tough. So um, that's why they're great to grow. In 10 days or two weeks, they're ready. And you just snip them off just above the soil line. Yeah, you uh, don't want to pull them out, do no, you? No, with the scissors, just cut them off. You don't want to get um, soil on the part you're going to eat. So that you just cut them off, give them a haircut, and then you can kind of rinse them off and store them in the refrigerator maybe just for a few days. Best use them right after you cut them. But however, I did just find out I had grown some arugula for a class I taught in January, and I came home and I had a whole flat of arugula left. I stuck it in my refrigerator, and they lasted a month in there. I don't know if all microgreen varieties will do that, but the arugula happened to hold up really well. And this is an ongoing process, so you would be replanting in various containers, what, every few days? Right. You could do that. Um, I, I use small containers, like a small deli container, and so it doesn't, that will last me maybe a week. And so I don't want to have a whole glut of the same thing all at one time, so I'll stagger my plantings so that um, I can just continue my harvest over a long period of time. The convenience of, of going to a, a nursery or a big box store and getting one of their seed starting kits, those trays are usually maybe 12 by 8 or maybe a little bit longer and a little bit narrower, but they have maybe 32 to 64 cells per tray, which means you can start a wide variety of microgreens in that. Correct. I've found with using those sorts of cell containers, it's a little tougher to harvest them because you sort of have the side of each of the cell kind of in the way. So I like to use a flat, something, an open, okay. like a, a flat that's six by ten or something. So you have a, you don't have any um, obstruction when you go to harvest them. Like a tray that uh, you might find at a nursery that's holding uh, several four-inch pots. Right. Yeah, something like that. You want to just have at least a couple of inches of depth for the soil. Mm -hmm. You don't want it too shallow, but it doesn't need to be really deep either. The right. roots aren't going to be in there that long. All right. Now let's get to the meat of the matter. What microgreens are best in, in your estimation? You've grown a lot of different uh, vegetables and herbs for microgreens. Which ones do you like the best? They're basically all cool season crops, so beets, mustard, arugula, lettuce. You could do chives. I, um, you can do some herbs. Basil is good. Uh, parsley, if you like the taste of parsley. Um, those are the ones I basically use, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and I tend to use up my old seeds. If I have a package of broccoli or cabbage that I'm not going to grow anymore, I'll use those for microgreens. Even Brussels sprouts that don't do that well in our climate, you can use those for microgreens. Now, you say cool season crops, but in reality, you could grow those year-round on your kitchen counter because you're harvesting them at the cotyledon or the first leaf stage. Correct. Um, I said that to differentiate between warm season crops, which would be corn and beans and tomatoes and peppers. 
Um, I've also heard, I haven't tried them, that peas, if you did peas, they're good. These pea shoots are edible. And um, so it's, it's what would be classified as a cool season crop, basically. You had something very unique in your deli containers because you tend to overplant on the edges, don't you? Right, and um, I didn't mention, you don't follow the seed package spacing recommendations. You sow them very thickly. So in a, a container that's six by six, I'll use up a half a half a package of seeds. So you want to have them really thick, no thinning required, and they're in the ground so in the soil so so short period of time. You want them thick. You want to be able to cut off a handful. I guess the easy way to plant it would be you have your tray or deli containers or whatever, and you, maybe you fill those containers maybe three-quarters of the way with that soilless mix. Mm-hmm. You sprinkle the seeds on top and then maybe cover them with a thin layer of more of that soilless mix. Exactly. That's what I do is I fill it maybe a quarter of an inch or so from the top, put in my seeds. I sow them very thickly, thicker than you'd think you'd want to, and then I just sprinkle in really lightly a little more of the potting soil. or. If the seeds are really tiny, you maybe don't have to do that at all. And give them a little watering and cover them and let them go. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that watering. Now, after you've planted the seeds and you want to keep that seed bed moist, are you misting it? I actually have a little apparatus that screws on an old water bottle. It has a lot of little holes, like a shower head. So it gives it a fine, not a mist, but it's a not a hard stream of water. And I use that initially, but then when I cover it, I really don't need to water it again until they've sprouted and say in my case I had things come up in a day or two and then once they sprouted take the lid off or you could use plastic wrap or whatever and um, then put them under lights and they'll be ready to harvest in another week and then you water it from the bottom from the bottom yeah once they um, I still water from the top maybe uh, the first few days after they come up but when they start getting tall watering from the top is going to knock the plants over so then I do bottom watering I've saved the best for last The nutritional value of microgreens is amazing. In your research, you found that it is multiple times nutritionally better than a full-grown plant. Right. Some sources in their research have said that they can be from 4 to 40 times more nutrients in the microgreens than in the mature crop, depending on what you're growing. And I grow them just because I think they're kind of fun and they taste good. But it's good to know that I'm also getting some added nutrients there. Could you make a whole salad out of it or just use it as a garnish? I use it as a garnish. Say if you liked an arugula salad, you could make a whole salad of the arugula sprouts. That's not my thing. I like a little bit of it on there. So I always add them to salads. But you could put them on omelets or in crepes or say in sandwiches or on sprinkle them on soup. I mean, kind of unlimited. Gail Potthour knows her vegetables, even the teeny tiny ones. Microgreens, give them a cry. Gail Potthour, Sacramento County Master Gardener out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. Thanks for talking to us about microgreens. Thanks, Fred. Coming up, we talk about bats and how they can be beneficial to fighting the garden bad guys in your yard as we continue with Get Growing on this November the 17th on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred, Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. 
In an eight-year study from 1997 to 2004, University of California evaluated the use of 186 bat houses in rural areas of California's Central Valley. Well, did you know that well-placed bat houses can attract bats to Central Valley farms? That was the conclusion, the results of the study, headed up by Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor in Yolo County. And uh, Rachel, when it comes to bats, I, you are probably bat fan number one. I know I've been uh, called Batwoman many times before, and I'm actually thrilled with the title. Thank you for, for having me today. It's amazing the insect population that can be controlled by bats and just the sheer numbers of insects that bats can control. Are they a benefit to a farmer? Bats are definitely a benefit to a, to a farmer. Uh, bats consume their body weight in insects every night. So if you have a colony of, say, 500 bats on your farm, they'll eat the equivalent of a grocery bag full of insects every night. And many of these uh, insects that they're feeding on are agricultural pests. So the bats feeding on a farm are definitely a huge benefit to a farmer. Now, when it comes to bat houses, can you get bats to quit roosting inside a barn or a garage and get them out to a bat house. So the bats are really true to their roost, and they, they do like to go back to where they were born every year, and uh, and they're just amazing, you know, the whole migration where they use actually the stars and the landscapes, because they have good eyesight in addition to echolocating. Um, they, uh, they do use uh, visual cues, and they also use the Earth's magnetic field. And so they, they do come back to the same place where they were born every year, just, just like salmon. And uh, and so they they really it's really um, very very difficult to uh, to actually you know um, get them to move into a house a bat house but if you do have a colony of bats where you don't want them you can exclude them from that area and then oftentimes they will move over into the new roost and when I'm talking about excluding that if you have a colony of bats, it's again mothers and their young. And the mothers, they have their young usually about uh, early June. And it takes a good, um, a good six weeks for the young to fly. And uh, so you don't want to do any exclusion during that time because otherwise, you know, if you, if you walled the uh, mothers out, then the babies uh, would die. So, um, so the best thing is, is when I talk, when I mention an exclusion, what I'm referring to is, is like a little one-way um, gate, like a, like a doggy door or something like that, where you put a flap over the area where you know the bats are coming in and out. And then they can push their way out, but they can't come back land and pick something up and get back in into that area um, because they have wings. They don't have hands, and they, so they can't, they can't lift things. So if you do an exclusion, it's really important to use something that, that, that bats can see light so they know, they know how to get out. So you want to use something like wedding veil material or something, and you just drape it over that opening where, where the bats are where you don't want them, and then they'll push their way out. Um, and then uh, they can't get back in, and then oftentimes you can force them into using the bat house. But again, you don't want to do that exclusion when they have their pups because the pups can't fly, and then, of course, the mothers are frantically trying to get back to their young. So when is a safe season, then, to do a permanent exclusionary uh, construction? 
in the wintertime is the best time to permanently exclude them because they're they're pretty much gone in the wintertime. Again, they, most of them are migratory and they leave during the uh, during the wintertime. But it's always good still to try the exclusion. And what I re- recommend is when people are doing an exclusion is to uh, just to basically again just put a cloth over that hole and use duct tape, you know, to tape on maybe two sides, the top and then one side, so the bats can push out but can't get back in. And you want to leave that there for about a week, and uh, because bats actually, they can, you know, they can go into a dormant state, particularly if it's nice and cool. So, so I would recommend, you know, week ten days just to make sure that all bats are not in there, and then, uh, and then you know, once once you know that they're all gone, then uh, then you can just seal up that uh, that particular area, whether it's with caulking or wood or something, to keep them keep them out of that area. If a farmer sees bats on their property and he doesn't have bat houses, where are they most likely coming from? Bats can actually fly a long ways. They've been recorded to fly up to 30 miles away from their roost to forage for, for insects. And so, so they could be, if a, if a farmer in our area sees bats on their farm, they could be coming from a local barn. They could be coming from a, a tree hole where you might have a roost, you know, in a, in a big tree hole in a tree. Or they could be coming from, like, under the causeway uh, between Davis and Sacramento where they're roosting in the expansion joint. So, so they're very strong flyers, and, uh, and they're always going to where they think they can get a good meal. And, uh, and, so, um, and so if you don't have a bat house, you can still benefit uh, from, from bats that are, that are moving into the area from, from around the region. Are they attracted to water features? Water is very important for bats that uh, bats do have to drink, and they drink on the wing just like swallows. So they swoop down and they scoop water into their mouth. And we find that uh, that if you do want to attract bats to to a farm using a, a bat house, then having water nearby is actually clearly a benefit because they do need water and they do need to drink several times a night. What is considered nearby? Nearby is within a quarter mile of water, so you want to make sure that you have uh, some sort of water source within a quarter mile, and that's going to increase the likelihood that you will have bats on your farm. And how big should that water feature be? Is there a minimum size that they're attracted to? They need they need some open pool that's probably at least 10 feet long because what happens is they, they're just like swallows. If you've watched swallows dip in for a drink of, of water in a pond, they just need some some room to swoop down and and uh, and drink water and uh, and come back up. So um, they can't. They don't have uh, feet like a bird. They have little little teeny teeny legs that are used for clinging on to uh, a surface upside down. So they can't land very easily and take off from the ground. So so that's why you need to have a big enough kind of area where they can swoop down and uh, and like an airplane doing a touch and go. <laughs> and so they need a little bit of room for that. So I would say something that's at least ten feet. Are there plans online for constructing bat houses or these exclusionary tactics? There are, yeah. The uh, and actually, I do have a uh, a publication out there online uh, through UCANR, which is about uh, bird, bats, and owl boxes. So, so there's information there which contains the uh, plans for building uh, bat houses. One of my favorite uh, bat houses, though, that uh, that I've seen on a farm is the uh, farmer just took a large piece of plywood and he put a three-quarter inch spacing all around the plywood, and then he just nailed it up to his barn. and uh, And he's got a lot of bats that are using that. I've seen other bat houses that are much more elaborate with multiple chambers, you know, maybe five or six different chambers. And it definitely takes a lot of work to build something like that. Um, so you can do something either simple or more complex. And you can get, you can actually buy bathhouses houses online as well. 
Now, one thing we didn't touch on, and we should, is the fact that since bats can carry rabies, these bat houses should probably be out of the traffic of people and pets. That's right, and uh, rabies is uh, it is a very it's a fatal disease, so definitely one that uh, that you don't want to get. And ra- and bats carry rabies, and so you'll have maybe one in a thousand bats that could that could have rabies. Um, but rabies is completely preventable. Uh, basically, you need to make sure to vaccinate your pets. So your cats and your dogs have to be vaccinated, and uh, and then you want to make sure never to handle a bat with bare hands. And because uh, they, you know, if they bite you, then you then you can uh, get uh, infected with rabies. And then also not placing the bat houses in an, in an area where you have lots of kids, that uh, little kids or something that might pick up the, uh, the a bat, or you know, if you have a cat or a dog in the area, because sometimes they do fall out of the out of the roost. So so you don't want to put it in the place where there is a lot of uh, uh, people traffic. It's uh, that's something to definitely think about. So it's very important then to have your pets uh, vaccinated for rabies. Yeah, rabies is is definitely preventable, and uh, the main way that you know rabies is getting into the human population is through unvaccinated animals, so dogs or cats that uh, that that then come down with rabies and they'll transfer it, you know, with to uh, uh, to a person. So so really, the key is uh, vaccinate your pets and never pick up a rabbit bat, and it's just then rabies is preventable, and you don't have to worry about it. And again, if people want more information about this uh, conversation, the article that you have online, Well-Placed Bat Houses Can Attract Mm -hmm. Bats to Central Valley Farms, it's available. You can just Google the phrase Well-Placed Bat Houses, and I'm -hmm. I'm sure if you put Rachel Long's name on there, it would pop right up, Mm -hmm. and you can read more about that. And also you can read more about bats uh, at the Pest Notes from the uh, University of California Integrated Pest Management System website. Rachel Long, always a pleasure talking with you. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension, Yolo County Farm. Advisor, thanks for spending a few minutes with us telling us more about bats. Well, thank you. It's just my pleasure. I always appreciate talking about uh, one of my favorite subjects, which is the riches bats, because they are so beneficial and feed on tons of insect dust. So, thank you very much for having me. Coming up here on Get Growing, well, there's the Garden Grappler at 11 o'clock, but in the meantime, uh, some frost control tips. Late November, it's not uncommon for a frost or a freeze to hit our area. There's none in the forecast right now. But you should have the implements necessary to protect your citrus and your succulents. And uh, we're going to dig a little deeper into indoor-outdoor thermometers that can uh, help you gauge when your trees might be threatened by a frost or a freeze. That's coming up as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, let's delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. And uh, Carol writes in and uh, brings up a topic we were discussing over on the KFPK Garden Show. And that had to do with uh, monitoring the temperature around your citrus trees that are most susceptible to a frost or a freeze. Generally speaking, two of the most vulnerable are fairly common and that's the Meyer lemon and the bear's lime. They can be damaged. At th- the fruit can be damaged, not the tree, but the fruit can be damaged if temperatures get down to about 30 degrees or so. Satsuma mandarins, on the other hand, very hardy. The fruit can uh, survive down to 25 degrees without uh, much damage. But it pays to know what the temperature is out where your citrus trees are growing. Many people make the mistake of monitoring the thermometer based on a thermometer that's attached to the house outside the kitchen window 
or in, in a door. And what you're getting there is a reading that reflects a lot of heat that's emanating outside from the house. So it's giving you a false reading. Look for a wireless indoor-outdoor thermometer, and that's what uh, Carol was asking about. Any particular brand for the citrus, so many to choose from? Was it indoor-outdoor? Yes. Uh, the words you want to look for if you're doing an Internet search for such a thermometer, it would be wireless, indoor-outdoor, and probably digital. There are several available for anywhere from 20 to $40 that have that remote sensor that you can place in the citrus tree or nearby the citrus tree. I would suggest that wherever you put the outdoor sensor, you keep it in the shade. Don't let it hit direct sun because that can give you some false readings. And generally speaking, the best time to look at those thermometers when you think there might be frost damage would be about 7 a.m. That seems to be when it's coldest in the Sacramento area. Your totals may vary. But again, uh, place this perhaps on the north side of a citrus tree, hang it. There's usually, there's a hanger attachment to these, and you can just uh, hang it from a branch to get a reading. Uh, just make sure it isn't too sheltered and kind of in an open area between the canopy of the tree and the ground. The wireless uh, indoor-outdoor thermometers, yes, you're right, Carol, there are many of them. Uh, from personal experience, I've had good luck with the Accurite brand, A-C-U-R-I-T-E. That's not a paid plug or anything like that. It's just the model that I happen to have had uh, pretty good success with that seemed to work year in, year in and year out with uh, you know, a battery change probably once a year or so. And uh, you'd be surprised at how different the temperature can be based on next to the house or out at the citrus tree, out in where you have your uh, maybe your succulents, other sensitive plants. It could be a five or a six degree difference. And also, don't believe what you hear on the TV news as far as weather and temperatures or on the Internet, even if you go to the National Weather Service and they're saying your high or your low temperature will be such and such. Every yard is different. All gardening is local. Every yard has microclimates where it can be a few degrees warmer or a few degrees colder based on where you put it in the yard. And if you are planting new citrus, Make sure it is in the warmest part of the yard. And that's where this indoor-outdoor wireless thermometer can help you out during the wintertime. Plan on planting citrus next spring. But in the meantime, use your wireless thermometer in various parts of the yard to see where it gets colder. Now, you may need two thermometers to do this just to compare one against the other or compare it against the uh, temperatures you're finding on that thermometer you may already have outside of your house and see which ones, how big a degree of difference there is at various parts of the yard. Generally speaking, for citrus, they like reflected heat in the wintertime. So a south or a west-facing wall are nice. And that's one advice, too, when it comes to uh, growing citrus, is to have it in an area where you do get reflected heat. Now, if your citrus is in a container, move it to an area that, A, can shelter it from the wind while providing some heat from the side of a building, south or west side. Very good for that. One of the most important tips I can pass on to you for protecting your citrus in case there is a frost or a freeze, and by the way, there are none predicted for Sacramento for the next week. Overnight low temperatures in our area for the next week look to be in the upper 30s to low 40s. But 
your totals may vary. There are areas of Sacramento County that can get four, five, six degrees cooler than what you than what I'm what's spewing from my mouth because I'm looking at temperatures that might be uh, recorded downtown Sacramento. Uh, one of the coldest, if you really want to get into this, check out the temperatures at Mather, the former Mather Air Force Base. National Weather Service has a weather station at Mather, and that's usually the coldest part of readings that the National Weather Service takes in Sacramento County. The other page to look at is on the National Weather Service seven-day forecast page is click on the More Forecasts link and then look at the ESRI page, E-S-R-I. And the ESRI page will show you temperatures throughout northern and central California and you can zoom in and zoom out and gives you a real good idea of where the cold troughs are. So consider all that. Now, where was I? Protecting citrus, the most important thing you can do Water it well before a frost or a freeze. Give it a good drink of water. Hydrated soil helps protect trees from the effects of frost or freeze and helps protect the fruit from effects of a frost or a freeze. Because let's face it, water, it's not going to go below 32 degrees. It's, the water temperature is going to be in the 40s or 50s. And that heat from that water is going to emanate back into the canopy of the tree from the ground during a cold night. So give your trees a good drink of water, your citrus trees, a good drink of water before a frost or a freeze is protected. 32 degrees, usually not a problem, especially if it's just for an hour or two, but still have the row covers available. And if you have to use burlap or cloth or plastic, build a frame around the tree, a PVC frame, so that when you drape a cloth over the tree, no part of that cloth is touching a leaf because the leaf will burn in a freeze. You can use safely use a polypropylene row cover. That's fine. But be sure to take it off during the day to allow that tree to warm back up if it's a sunny day especially. So more frost and freeze tips, go to FarmerFred.com. Uh, look down the middle of the page, and uh, you'll see some links to the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page where you can find more tips on protecting frost-sensitive plants. Check out the information there, including there's a chart there about... Uh, what various citrus and the temperatures they can take. So check that out as well. Hey, there's a garden grappler coming up. There's a clue available at FarmerFred.com. Just click on the link that says a clue for the garden grappler or at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. We'll be doing that. And we're going to be talking poinsettias too when we come back to the KFBK Garden. Or where am I? Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. You ready in there, Cameron? All right, he's ready to jot down names and addresses and find five winners for today's Garden Grappler. Name a plant that normally blooms here in November or December. Normally. Don't say tomatoes. Yeah, you might have some yellow flowers, but that's not normal. Name a plant that normally blooms here in November or December. All five callers get a prize. Special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. The numbers to call in on, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Name a plant that normally blooms here 
not fruiting here, but blooms here in November or December. There's probably some in your yard right now. Name one. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. It's the Garden Grappler, and it's going on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. While you're thinking about that, let's find out more about poinsettia. As I took a nice long bike ride up to Auburn uh, the other day and, and got to talk with Bill Isley about uh, their poinsettias. Let's listen to that right now. Well, it's a beautiful November day. We're up at Isley's Nursery in Auburn, and they're having an open house. And what we're staring at are tables and tables of beautiful poinsettias. Isley's is known in the fall for their collection of poinsettias. In the spring, they're known for their tomatoes. But right now, we're talking with Bill Isley. And Bill, these are gorgeous poinsettias. How many varieties do you have here? Now you got me. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll start with an easier question. Yeah. There's two different types of red. And then we have their Jingle Bells, Orange Spice, Monet's, Ice Punch, Pink's, about nine different varieties. And of course, I imagine in the spring, these all become tomatoes. Yes, this will be the vegetable production house. Right. How long have you been uh, propagating and growing uh, poinsettias? My father and uncle started doing the poinsettias in the early 70s. I took over production of the poinsettias in 1978. A while then. A couple of years. <laughs> yeah, a couple of years. Local nurseries love your product. They they love the poinsettias because they're they're healthy. They're they they grow well just like your tomatoes. Yes, they do. So we ship, you know, to other nurseries to the forest here in northern California and western Nevada. Yeah, it's interesting to see a poinsettia production going on here in Northern California. You tend to think of this as a Southern California institution, but but if, as long as you got poly roofs and uh, probably a, a large PG&E bill, you can get away with it. Yes, we can. PG&E loves us. <laughs> all right. It's mostly gas heat, I would think. Yes, all gas heat. And then in the summer, we have these big draft fans and then the cooling pads, just like a an old swamp cooler to cool the houses down to keep them at temperature. And of course, uh, these will be gone probably by mid-December? Yes, around December 15th, except for there are some churches that wait till the 20th or so of December before they take theirs. All right, and, and these are in some very nice pots here. You, you've got all of these in ceramic pots. Yeah. Yep, they're all in clay pots. We, we are one of the last ones to do them in clay pots. But since I sell two nurseries and florists, we don't want it to look like mass marketers, so we stay with the clay instead of the plastic. It's excellent. It's just fantastic here. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen so many uh, poinsettias in one place. Uh, are, are you unique to growing this in Northern California? Maybe over in the Bay Area there might be some. There's still quite a few poinsettia growers here in Northern California. Lodi, Galt, over on the Half Moon Bay and stuff. So there's still quite a few of us growing. Give us some care tips for poinsettias. You want to keep them away from drafts, away from the front door, away from any heaters, any wood heaters if you're heating with wood, and you want to keep them in filtered light away from a window. Like on your dining room table, it's perfect. All right, and they're good till what, February or so? Yes, they would should last you at least until Valentine's Day if you're taking good care of them. And I imagine 
at least once a day, somebody comes up to you and says, now, how can I get this to last all year? Every day. <laughs> Every day. They do. Yeah. You can't get it to stay in color year round. It is going to revert back to green. And then you have to start the process all over where you're cutting it back to get new shoots. And then it's water, temperature, and fertilization to get it to come back into color. Not to mention a long period of darkness. They not as much as the old varieties. Mm. The new varieties, they actually light up. And we have enough ambient light coming in from around the nursery. I do not light them because it's more of a dull color. They do not have the vibrant color if you light them or use black cloth. So we just use natural light. All right. So for those attempting to, uh, shall we say, oversummer their poinsettias and get them to rebloom or to recolor, because we should point out, and we haven't done that yet, that the actual flower of the plant is this center part. Center part. The cyathea. Yes. The bract is what colors up, and it is not the flower. Right. The bract is a modified leaf, and people say, oh, what beautiful flowers, when in reality, it's a beautiful leaf. It's a beautiful bract. Yes, the leaf pests of poinsettias. I don't see any white flies here. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> we are on the white flies all the time. We do two treatments. We have lucked out this year with the white flies, but they're more susceptible now to root rots mm. than what they used to be. That is our big thing. I'm um, actually been treating the poinsettias every 15 days for root rot. Well, that would be another uh, cultural tip then, yes. uh, is for people, don't put them in pots without drainage. They need good drainage. They have to have good drainage, and you let it dry out before you water mm. it again. Right. You do not want to keep it wet all the time. Poinsettias, it's a beautiful plant for the fall. They do so well here. They're everywhere, and they're up here in Auburn at Isley's Nursery at 380 Nevada Street. I'm kind of wondering how I'm going to leave. I guess I can't go back down Nevada Street. It seems to be a one-way street. It is closed right now for one-way street. you got to go down to Fullweiler. Well, I'm on my bike. I'll manage. Yes, you'll manage. <laughs> all right. Bill Isley, Isley's Nursery. Come on up to Auburn and pay it a visit, especially now, and check out all their beautiful poinsettias or poinsettias. Call it what you will. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. All right. Let's get back to the Garden Grappler, lining up five people who can name a plant that normally blooms here in November or December. Two open lines still at 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Who's up first? It is Lisa in Lakeport. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So, Lisa, what uh, plant is uh, blooming for you in November or December? Camellia. Yes. Do you know which camellia? I do not know specific names, just uh, just uh, the white. I have a white one in my yard. I, I don't really know the technical name. It's just a camellia. I'll tell you because I'm Mr. Smarty Pants. The, uh, okay. the, the camellias that are blooming right now are called Sasanqua camellias. And they, they're the ones that tend to bloom in October, November, and December. The ones that we think of as the big, uh, fluffy camellia flowers, where they have a camellia show, and they used to have a parade in Sacramento for them, those are the Japonica camellias, and they tend to bloom in late winter, usually in March or early April. 
And but mm-hmm. I like the Sasanqua ones, the ones that you have blooming right now, because it's a smaller flower. It's much neater. It doesn't make the big mess that the japonicas mm-hmm. make. And uh, mm-hmm. it's really a, a nice, neat shrub as well. And I really like it. But uh, yeah, the, the camellia, the Sasanqua camellias are blooming right now everywhere in Northern California, including for Lisa in Lakeport. And uh, Lisa, what do I have for you? I have Farmer Fred's Fall Garden Checklist and from the Sacramento County Master Gardeners, uh, Growing Edible Flowers in Your Garden. So that information will be coming your way. Oh, thank you. With a pretty postage stamp on the envelope. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. All right. Uh Bye-bye. Have a good day. All right. All right. Who's number two? Would it be Ted in Granite Bay? It would. It is. It is. is. How Sharon? I want to know how Sharon Sharon is. She's at she's at church. Oh, good for she her. Gets, gets away on a work day. <laughs> uh, before I give an answer, Isley's is an awesome place. It's I get all my vegetables, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants up there, and they grow them all. Yes, they and do. It's just, it's just a great place to go up there. So, if you're in that area, that's a place. Friendly people too. I like them, and and, and people have been telling me that they have great popcorn too. They do. And free coffee and uh, tea if you want it, right by the popcorn machine. All right. But again, yeah. Nevada Street, and they're at 380 Nevada Street. They've, they're doing a lot of work on Nevada Street. So you can get to Isley's Nursery from the freeway, but you can't get back to the freeway on Nevada Street. So you have to go around. I see. Okay. Well, I'm not going up there today. All right. No camellias for you. Or no, uh, okay. no poinsettias did, for you. Did you see my uh, pomegranate post? Uh, no. What was it? I made pomegranate juice yesterday and with my uh, great-grandson and got, man, quite a bit and uh, did it real easily this time. So yeah, I'm beating, I'm beating the squirrels to my tree this year. Good for you. I want to know who's doing the laundry. How much pomegranate juice did you get on you and your grandson? We got yelled at a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at my hands right now. Yeah, there's pain. But all good stuff. Okay, back to the garden grappler. I'm in my garden here, and I'm looking at all my beautiful zinnias that are, they've got a new life to them, just like roses do. With this weather. Oh, come on, Ted. Come on, Ted. Don't do that to me. You know better than that. I I said normally, a a plant that normally blooms here. Okay, I I also see some calendula. Thank you. All right. All right. Yes, calendulas are good. Yeah, I know. The zinnias are hanging on because we haven't had any really cold temperatures or much rain. But I bet the leaves of the zinnias have lots of powdery mildew on them. Yeah, they do, but uh, it must have frozen up up above my garden because up there at the upper garden, they're all gone. But down below, I'm looking, they're beautiful here. Thank you. All right, but, but calendula is a much better answer. Okay. All right, Ted, I'll be sending you stuff in the mail or dropping it off or doing all right. something. All, all right. right. Thank you, Fred. Thanks, Ted. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, two down, three to go. Number three, it's Amy in Sacramento. Amy, go ahead, give us a... Uh, plant that normally blooms in november or december hi amy amy are you there why cannot we hear amy we cannot hear amy where's amy i will put oh there's amy hi amy hello hello amy hi um bird of paradise (sighs) 
Mine's blooming away. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. How long has it been blooming? Long time. Yeah, a long time. Does it always bloom in November? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, can, do you have another? Do you have an alternate answer? Thanksgiving cactus. Okay, fine. A, a schlumbergia, we'll call it, or, or just Thanksgiving cactus. That'll work. I like that. And yours is blooming. Uh huh. Okay. Oh no, right. no, it it has buds. <laughs> okay, but it normally blooms in November, December, and that was the 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 question that I yeah. posed. So yes, it would a Thanksgiving cactus would normally bloom in November or December. Whereas if you had a, a typical November freeze and if we had any rain, that bird of paradise might look a little tacky right now. Amy, uh-huh. congratulations. I'll send you the uh, uh, information on growing edible flowers in your garden as well as Farmer Fred's Fall Garden Checklist. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Amy. Bye-bye. All right. We have two open lines. I can pull your teeth. Come on, we can do this. Name a plant that normally blooms here in November or December. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Name a plant that normally, normally blooms here in November or December. Bonus prize for caller five. It's the Garden Grappler and it's going on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. In the midst of the Garden Grappler, getting five winners lined up who can name a plant that normally blooms here in November or December. Lisa in Lakeport said camellia, specifically the Sasanqua camellia is what's blooming now. Ted in Granite Bay, I had to squeeze this answer out of him, but calendulas are in bloom. It's a cool season annual. And Amy in Sacramento said Thanksgiving cactus. Yes. They all bloom in November or December. We have callers four and five on the line. Let's see if we can finish this off with a bonus prize for caller five. Debbie in Oroville's caller number four. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Fred. So, Debbie, what uh, blooming plant can you think of? Well, how about an amaryllis? How about an amaryllis? Oh, my heavens. You mean like a naked lady? Well, I bought this one in the store, and you grow them in the house, and they yeah. bloom out, in, like, for Christmas. If that's not right, I'll try something else. Well, it, it kind of is. I mean, you're forcing it. it, it's, it, it in nature, it would not be blooming now, but the way it's grown in a greenhouse and then shipped to a store and then to your living room, it's going to be uh, in bloom for a while. But if you have a backup answer, it would make me happier. Okay, this is probably <laughs> just as bad. Chrysanthemum? Uh, no, chrysanthemums uh, can last in bloom. They're usually, uh, in fact, that's why the chrysanthemum show is uh, usually in early November is because that's when they're in bloom. Yeah, that's the only one I, I thought for outdoors is a, is a good standby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, chrysanthemums, a uh, very uh, common nursery plant, too, in uh, midfall as well. So, yeah, we'll go with chrysanthemums. Good okay. job. I'll be sending you the... Uh, from the Sacramento County Master Gardeners, growing edible flowers in your garden information and the Farmer Fred Fall Garden Checklist. So that'll Thank be coming you. your way. Thanks, Debbie. Appreciate bye it. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. And call in number five, and today's garden grappler in Citrus Heights is Laura. Hi, Laura. Good morning. Hi there. You're on your phone, and you're in your car. I am. I am. I had to pick up dogs this morning. How are I the dogs? I say the good dogs. Okay. Christmas cheer. 
Oh, you've, you've got my heart. Yes, indeed. The Christmas cheer Nipophia has already started to bloom, and it's an impressive bloom, and it's going to stay in bloom from November, probably through March or April or even longer. And it's a it's the common name is the poker, poker plant, and uh, but the Christmas cheer variety blooms this time of year, but it really puts on a show in December. And uh, oh, that that that's a perfect uh, caller number five answer there, Laura. Great. Pre- mine, mine is in full bloom, and in and in defense of the lady who said bird of paradise, there have been many Thanksgivings and Christmases where I have uh, cut my bird of paradise flowers and brought them into the house. Okay, I stand corrected. Well, unless we have a unless we have a really really nasty freeze. Exactly, like in uh, 2010 when it got down into the 20s on Thanksgiving. Yeah, but uh, yeah, okay, fine. But uh, every everybody's happy. Everybody wins. Laura, I'm going to be sending you the uh, 2020 uh, gardening guide and calendar from the Sacramento County Master Gardeners. Um, I already have one of those, so you could. Maybe give that to somebody else, and I will be fine. I will send you a sheet of pretty horticultural-related postage stamps then. Well, that is awesome. Thank you. Okay, if you still use uh, the mail. I do. Okay. Often, okay. Okay, good. Well, these are pretty stamps, and they're, they'll either have cherry blossoms on them or winter uh, fruiting berry plants or, or oh, flowering awesome. cactus. I got, just got those. So, yes, a, a sheet of postage stamps for those of us who, who still use the U.S. mail. Yes, some of, us, some of us still use snail mail. Yes, indeed. Laura, thanks so much. Good answer with the Nipophia. <laughs> Hi, Thank dog. You. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Good job, people. All right. Yeah, the, uh, I, I can't say enough about the Christmas cheer Nipophia, the poker plant. It just is a focal plant for your yard for not just Christmas time, but like I say, from November through March. It's a plant that has green spikes, evergreen spikes, sort of like a grassy plant, except strapping leaves. They're a bit thicker than you would think on a, uh, a, a grassy plant. But give it room because it gets about six feet wide. So give it room to grow out. It may not, it won't be six feet when you buy it. It'll be much smaller, but it does fatten out, if you will, and get wide. And it sends up more and more spikes that rise above the green foliage. The total height of the plant with the flower spikes, probably five feet tall, maybe six feet tall. They get bigger every year, and you get more of those flower spikes as well. And the flowers on those spikes gradually open up, and you get a a succession of bloom. The hummingbirds love it. Uh, The bees love it if it's a warm enough day. It's uh, just a, a really nice plant. It is an, a UC Davis Arboretum All-Star to boot. And if you find the Christmas cheer Nipophia and you have a sunny spot and can give it six feet of width of room all the way around so it doesn't crowd out everything else, I'm speaking from experience here, uh, <laughs> uh, get one. You, you won't be disappointed with it. All right. Good job, folks. All right. Uh, what's coming up? Oh, we're going to answer some emails. We're going to be doing that. We are going to find out about the Harvest Festival that's coming to Cal Expo next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I will be putting in shameless plugs for the KSDE Farm Hour between noon and 1 o'clock on this very radio station. And uh, if you've got an email question especially, uh, get it into fred at farmerfred.com. 
I see a Willie in Livermore has several questions about a lot of them have to do with thrips. So we'll talk about thrips, too. But uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about the Harvest Festival that's uh, coming up to Cal Expo. Harvest Festival is a wonderful thing. It's craftspeople. It's artists. And their custom-made wares are just wonderful. And we're going to be talking to uh, one of the craftspeople uh, as well as one of the uh, organizers of the Harvest Festival. And, and, and I should thank uh, Lori from Fiddletown, who, uh, who's a normal uh, displayer at the uh, Harvest Festival. She's the owner of Smoke and Mary. She makes a Bloody Mary mix, and she makes it out of smoked tomatoes. And she contacted me to say hi, and she's going to be at the uh, Harvest Festival as well. So, yeah, basically she's getting tomatoes and uh, smoking the tomatoes. I don't mean rolling them in paper or anything like that. It's smoked tomatoes. And making a Bloody Mary mix out of it, and it's uh, very tasty. Uh, We'll take a break, find out what's going on in the world, and then when we come back, we'll pay a visit to the Harvest Festival as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Following is a paid promotional announcement. The West Coast's largest indoor arts and crafts show, and it's a one-stop shopping destination, is coming to Cal Expo November 22nd through the 24th. It's the Sacramento Harvest Festival. Why has it become such an important event to all of us in this area? Let's find out. We're talking to the Harvest Festival's Liz Rosinski. And Liz, what is the Harvest Festival and how did it get started? So the Harvest Festival, like you said, it's the largest indoor arts and crafts show on the West Coast. We, we've we been around for 47 years and we actually got started as a small craft show uh, in San Francisco. It was sort of just a way for artists to kind of gather and share their, uh, their arts and their crafts and today it's grown um you know we have nine shows throughout the throughout the state of california and nevada and what's really cool about our show is that it's all american handmade products so all of our artists have to be juried in they have to you know submit photos and videos of themselves making their products so people who come know there's a real high quality of merchandise that they're going to see and that it's stuff that you really can't find anywhere else and it's quite a number of vendors and unique uh, arts crafts and gifts that'll have available it's in the thousands isn't it Yes, over 24,000 handmade arts and crafts. This really helps the independent contractor, if you will, that person in business for themselves, the craftspeople of Northern California and beyond. And uh, you're also helping some local charities as well. Yeah, so we are partnering again with... um, Elk Grove Community Food Bank. So anyone who brings a, a non-perishable food donation will get $2 off their ticket. Um, we also are partnering with the Delta Gold uh, AT&T Pioneers. And so they will receive half of the proceeds from our parcel check and our shopping bags. Um, we have a new Kid Zone provider this year. We always have a Kid Zone where kids can, you know, take part in arts and crafts. And it's the Sacramento Children's Museum. So we're excited to have them. So, and of course, we've got a new entertainer this year we've got a lot of um, you know daily music and entertainment what i really like it is the wide variety of 
exhibits that are there. You've got art, you've got jewelry, you've got clothing, you've got photography, pottery, toys, accessories, a lot of specialty food items as well. What are some of the more unique items that'll be at this year's version of the Harvest Festival? So we've got, well, we've got a ton of stuff for your garden lover. You know, we have Decora makes these fabulous garden stakes and plant stakes for your yard. And we have a, a Yankee glass art who uh, takes kind of the repurposed uh, antique glass and makes these beautiful bird feeders. Like you said, a ton of special, great specialty foods. We actually have someone who makes a wine slushy mix. So it, that's perfect for your, you know, holiday entertaining. So yeah, there's, there's just a ton of, of great things. And, and really it's great that you get to talk to the artists and kind of find out what their process is and sort of have a one-on-one interaction with them. And uh, you spoke of uh, garden items, and in a few minutes we'll be talking with Colleen's Garden Boutique, and she makes succulent garden art, so we'll be talking to her in just a couple of minutes. What, What are some of the entertainment that goes on at the Harvest Festival? So we have a ton of great entertainment. It's very family oriented. Uh, we have a new act this year, Bree Crabtree. She has her, a totally sweet circus show. So it's fun. She kind of, she's juggling, she's riding unicycles. She's, uh, it, it's it's really something to see. We've got um, Sister Swing, who kind of does Boogie Woogie. They're a trio, uh, that old doo-wop music that just everyone loves. We've got uh, Wandering entertainment so you'll keep your eye out for santa on stilts you can't miss him he's he's towering high above above the crowd yeah a little little bit for everyone we have daily prize drawings you can you visit our website and download our our prize drawing form and and bring it to the show to win harvey bucks which you can spend at the festival so yeah we've, we've got a lot of stuff going on It's the Sacramento Harvest Festival coming to Cal Expo next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 22nd through the 24th. The show is Friday from 10 till 5, Saturday 10 to 6, Sunday 10 to 5. If you want more information, visit their website, harvestfestival.com. Liz Rosinski of the Harvest Festival, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thank you, Fred. Also with us on the phone, it's Colleen Alvarez, and she's with Colleen's Garden Boutique. She'll be at the Harvest Festival as well at Cal Expo, November 22nd through the 24th. And Colleen, talk about some of the garden art you're going to have there because you work with succulents, a very hot commodity in the world of gardening right now. Yes, we specialize in vertical succulent arrangements, and we have uh, a variety of different shapes and sizes that they come in. We offer custom planting at the event, but they they hang on the wall, and they're all planted with succulents. They're beautiful. Wow, and how how big can some of these uh, exhibits get? Our largest that we have at the show is our large letter, and it's about 20 inches tall. But we also offer custom orders. We've done logos for companies as big as eight feet long. So we do a lot of, you know, other things as well. But at the at, at the event, we'll have our large letters would be the biggest. So I imagine the most often asked question you get is, well, how do you water it? Yes, it is. <laughs> so to care for the vertical arrangements, you lay them flat and water them thoroughly down to the root. And you'll do that about every two to four weeks. The succulents like to be watered well and then allowed to dry out completely before they're watered again. So the frequency really varies depending on the time of year and um, if you have them inside or outside. What kind of succulents are you working with? 
We have a, a really large selection. We actually bring hundreds of varieties to the event with us. Uh, we have Echeverias, Semprovivums, we have Sedums, and we have you know just hundreds to choose from because all of the different colors and textures make the vertical arrangements just look amazing. So how do people display them in their home? I would think they would need a sunny window. They would. They need about four to six hours of sunlight a day. If it's inside, we do recommend by a window or a skylight, or they can also be hung outside um, during our summer months. If you live where it's hot, you want to put them in a spot that gets just morning sun, but afternoon shade. All right. So around here, that would be the eastern side of the house, and you could probably mist them as well, I would think. Um, during the summer, you can mist them, but, um, you know, every every few days, just lightly. But we recommend just thoroughly watering them when they're laying flat so that you actually get down to the roots. The succulents hold water in their leaves, um, but in order to do that and be drought tolerant, they need to be watered thoroughly. What are your most popular uh, vertical succulent arrangements that you'll be offering there at the Harvest Festival? say our most popular would be our small letters. They're about 10 inches tall and they're great gift items. A lot of times people will get them, you know, the first letter of someone's name or the first letter of someone's last name. So those are probably the most popular. The second most popular would probably be our hearts. We have three different sizes. We have a small size for 49, a medium for 89, and a large for 149. But they make, uh, they make grip great gift ideas and then um, we also have a mini birdhouse and they're just cute they're perfect if you're going over to someone's house just to say thank you for hosting um, they're just twenty dollars and and they're just adorable so that's that's a really nice gift idea as well what a unique gift idea succulent garden art vertical succulent garden art no less and you can find all of colleen alvidrez's work there at colleen's garden boutique Part of the Harvest Festival at Cal Expo next weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 22nd through the 24th. If you want more information about the Harvest Festival, you can visit their website, harvestfestival.com. Colleen, it sounds like fun. You're going to have a popular display at the Harvest Festival at Cal Expo. Yeah, it'll be great. We're looking forward to it. If you want more information, visit the website harvestfestival.com. It's the Harvest Festival coming to Sacramento's Cal Expo next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, let's take a look at upcoming garden events before we uh, dig into Willie's uh, from Livermore's question about uh, thrips, which is an interesting topic all by itself. This coming Wednesday, November 20th, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., the Master Food Preservers of Sacramento County are doing a class called Gifts from the Kitchen. They'll be sharing recipes and tips for preparing gifts. There is a $5 materials fee payable at the door. No reservations needed. It's at the Cooperative Extension Office, which is at 4145 Branch Center Road, which is near the intersection of Bradshaw and Kiefer. And that again, Wednesday evening, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. We talked about the Harvest Festival coming to Cal Expo next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, next Saturday, it's Fall Color in the Rose Garden. And we're talking about the historic Rose Garden in the historic city cemetery at 10th and Broadway Streets. Uh, the historic Rose Garden docents will be talking about fall color in the Rose Garden, about beautiful foliage, 
late blooms, a variety of colorful rose hips uh, in the Pioneer Garden Cemetery. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. Rain will cancel the event. There is no rain scheduled for next Saturday, though. 10 a.m., it's a free event at the Historic City Cemetery at 10th and Broadway in Sacramento. Next weekend, not this weekend, but next weekend, it's the Mandarin Festival up in Auburn at the Gold Country Fairgrounds at 1273 High Street, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 22nd through the 24th. Placer County Master Gardeners will be there to answer your garden questions and to... uh, you can help them out by buying their 2020 gardening guide and calendar. They'll have that there there at the uh, Mandarin Festival next weekend. Sacramento County gar- gardeners know about the uh, Sacramento Garden Guide and Calendar produced by the local Master Gardener Group. Available at uh, online. Just do an internet search of a Sacramento County Master Gardener calendar and the link will pop up. Or you can uh, visit one of your favorite Sacramento County nurseries. To find it, such as Amy Ace Hardware, Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery, any of the three Green Acres Nursery stores in Sacramento County. By the way, the Green Acres stores in Placer County, the two, they carry the uh, Placer County Master Gardener Garden Guide and Calendar. Uh, Angela Pratt's Plant Foundry at 3500 Broadway in Sacramento has the Master Gardener Calendar for Sacramento County, as well as the Secret Garden on West Stockton Boulevard in Elk Grove, Soilborne Farms on Chase Drive in Rancho Cordova, Tallini's Nursery at 5601 Folsom Boulevard in Sacramento also has that. All right. Meanwhile, Willie in Livermore asks, I have had I have an established rhododendron plant, seven feet by seven feet. Wow. It seems to have a bad case of thrips. I have sprayed Captain Jack's bug brew and have cut some branches off. By the way, Captain Jack's bug brew is a name for a product in which the active ingredient is spinosad, which is an organically acceptable bactericide that is registered for use on thrips. What I don't know is if it's registered for use on rhododendrons. Two things. When you're buying an insecticide, what you need to do is to make sure that, A, the pest you want to, it will really, first of all, know the pest. Know what pest you're dealing with. And then make sure that pest is listed on the label of the insecticide and make sure that the plant you want to apply that insecticide to is also listed on the label. Anyway, uh, Willie says, it doesn't seem to be reacting to the spray. What should I do at this time? Cut it way back? The center of the plant is sparse. Most of the growth is on the outermost of the plant. Dig it up and start all over again? The plant is so large, it's difficult to get a good saturation on the plant. And uh, he also has a question about thrips on ferns that are growing uh, beneath the redwood trees. And again, uh, with thrips, there are various species of thrips. You can basically tell you have thrips by the damage they cause, which is a stippling of the leaves. It sort of turns the leaves a silvery color. They puncture the leaf surface and suck out the juice of the leaf, and you'll see the stippling. Usually by the time you see the stippling, the thrip is gone. Now, in the case of rhododendrons, it's a very specific thrip, that uh, likes rhododendrons, and it is the greenhouse thrip. And the greenhouse thrip likes perennial plants like rhododendrons, plants that have thick, broad leaves like avocado, azalea, rhododendron, hypericum, uh, English laurel, Grecian laurel, photinia, and, as I said, rhododendron. Now, what do you do about it? Well, greenhouse thrips are... You have one good thing in your favor when it comes to greenhouse thrips, and that's they tend to move slow. Greenhouse thrips 
tend to be sluggish. The adults tend not to fly. Individuals tend to feed in groups. Populations usually begin in a limited part of the plant and spread slowly. The thing to check on for thrips is look at the underside of the leaves of susceptible plants. Check them regularly for early detection and removal of new infestations, and pruning out those colonies can be affected. The general advice when it comes to pruning flowering plants to control thrips is don't just cut off the new growth. Basically, thin out the branch. Cut it back to where it meets up with another branch and take that out. Because if you just cut off the top new growth, that new young growth that pops out is going to be very susceptible to even more thrips. All right, so we're talking greenhouse aphids here. And you've checked the underside of the leaves. You know, you can put out yellow sticky traps, too. They'll let you know when you have a new infestation. That's always a good way to find out when you do have a problem. But greenhouse thrips can be readily controlled with contact sprays such as horticultural oil, natural pyrethrins, or insecticidal soaps. Now, the key with those three is to apply it to the underside of the infested leaves. And you may need to repeat the application. Now, remember, too, that greenhouse thrips have natural enemies uh, in the landscape, and you really want to assess whether spraying is warranted, and then you want to choose the materials that are least toxic to the natural enemies that um, go after thrips. So what you want to do is um, basically encourage the good guys like green lacewings, minute pirate bugs, mites, and certain parasitic wasps to help control plant-feeding thrips, Put other plants around that rhododendron that encourage the good guy population. I like to call them the good bug hotels. In fact, if you go to farmerfred.com, look at the middle of the page, you will find a link to a blog post that is called the good bug hotels. And those are the plants that will attract the beneficials and help you control in the future thrip populations on your rhododendron or wherever you have a thrip situation. But remember that if you do resort to using chemicals, you could be adversely affecting the population of the good guys. The uh, thrips are small, too, by the way. They're like 1 20th of an inch. Greenhouse thrips usually have uh, black bodies with pale wings. The youngsters, they tend to be white to yellowish, looking sort of like a little white or yellow worm. And that's what a greenhouse thrip looks like. And again, pruning out any sort of infested uh, branches helps. It also helps to monitor the situation looking at the underside of the leaves. Uh, I would start off um, with insecticidal soap and do a thorough application of that. And don't make it a home brew insecticidal soap. Get it commercially because insecticidal soaps, if you make it at home, you could actually damage your plant because not all soaps are created equal. That dishwashing detergent may not work for your home brew of insecticidal soap. Just go out and buy the commercial insecticidal soap. Horticultural oils as well. Good time of the year to use those. Be sure to follow label directions. And uh, control them using mechanical, cultural, and physical means first before uh, resorting to chemicals, I should point out, physical, mechanical, cultural controls, and then chemicals as a last resort to uh, control 
uh, thrips. More information available online. Uh, you, folks at UCANR, the University of California Ag and Natural Resources Department, have an excellent publication on managing thrips in gardens and landscapes. Just do a, a search of UCANR and thrips home garden, and you'll get some uh, very good information with pictures, too, of the pest. All right, I'm out of here. I'm making room for the KSDE Farm Hour. That's coming up next. KSDE Farm Hour today features, uh, what do we have on today's program? I know what we have about today's program. We are going to be uh, exploring the economic future of California agriculture with the director of the Ag Issue Center at UC Davis, and he forecasts what 2050, the year 2050 in California agriculture is going to look like. And one piece of advice he has is, if it grows in Saskatchewan, it may not be a good investment here, which is uh, his way of saying uh, hemp is not going to make you rich in California. If you can grow it in Canada, well, that means anybody can grow it. So it may not be the crop of the future you think it is. But he has other good advice and tips uh, about the future of California ag and where you might be headed. Also, we talk about the second round of market facilitation payments uh, coming to farmers, which includes more money for California specialty crop growers. And, of course, we'll have crop reports, look at the weather, and a lot more. And that's on the KSDE Farm Hour, noon to 1 o'clock, right after the news. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again next Sunday at 10 a.m.